Hello guys and welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm the host Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. I welcome you all here and I hope that you're all very, very good and well. Now I start this episode with a bit of an explanation. It is part two of The Corpse in Coniston Water and I must explain why. When I researched and wrote The Corpse in Coniston Water, when I come to record it, it would actually, it was longer than the Bible and it would have actually run for ages and I thought rather than try and edit all that in one it and people become bored by listening to me for about two hours I'll split it down into two and stagger the episodes over a couple of days so that's what I've done so just to recap if you haven't listened to part one of the corpse in Coniston water then this episode won't make any sense whatsoever and I'd invite you to go back and listen to that one first and then when you're done with that one Come back, jump in here, and we can all crack on with getting on with the rest of the story because it is a very complex story and there's a lot to it. So, just to recap, then, last episode we looked at the life of Carol Ann Park, whose body was discovered in August 1997, trussed up, wrapped up in plastic, and laid at the bottom of Coniston Water up in the Lake District, where she'd lain for the past 21 years. We looked at her life and the episode concluded last time when Carol was last seen in mid-July 1976. As I say, if you've not listened to it yet, then please jump back and have a listen, catch up and then we'll crack on with this one. The episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as always. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for part two of The Corpse in Coniston Water. So Coniston Water's Lady of the Lake now had a name and a backstory, but who'd killed her and who'd placed her there? When reports of the discovery broke and speculation had been rife that this was Carol before her identity had been confirmed... It had, of course, also crossed the minds of the now-adult Park children that this could indeed be their long-missing mother. Gordon Park was on a camping holiday in France at the time of discovery with his third wife, coincidentally the woman who'd been his first girlfriend so many years before, Jennifer. Once the Park children were informed by police that the body had been confirmed as being that of Carol Park on the 19th of August, The deeply upset Park children made contact with Gordon on his holiday to inform him of the discovery. Jeremy Park informed his father what had been found and that on his return to the UK, Cumbria CID wished to speak to him. Park's response was, oh dear, oh dear. Now if the mother of your children, your first wife that you'd reported missing 21 years before, because, oh yes, Gordon had reported Carol missing in 1976, but we shall get to that shortly, was suddenly discovered at the bottom of a lake just 15 miles from where she'd last been seen, I'm sure that would be a shock for you. But imagine what it would do to your kids, and you'd drop everything and make every effort to be with them as soon as possible after such a discovery, wouldn't you? Not Gordon, he and Jennifer continued their French holiday and didn't actually arrive back in Barrow until the early hours of 24th of August 1997. Although we spoke to several other people back in Cumbria concerning the discovery over this period, he never once contacted Cumbria police himself, which you'd think he would do, wouldn't you? This wasn't lost on the minds of several people either. 
Whilst he was still in France, however, on the 22nd of August, police had entered and searched the house that Gordon and Jennifer lived in, 34 Norland Avenue in Barrow, in Furness, under the authority of a search warrant. The search had also extended to a yacht owned by Gordon Park, Mrs J, which was actually moored on Coniston Water, and two days before this, on the 20th of August, a search was also made at Bluestones, the former Park family home which Gordon had sold to a man named Harry Furzeland in December 1991. During this search, Harry was able to point out to police various items that had been left by Gordon Park following the house sale, and in total a number of items had been seized during these searches, including hammers and ice axe, several lengths of rope and string that were recovered from all three locations, a toilet bowl that had been left in the garage following the sale of bluestones, and several pieces of scrap lead piping that had also been left there. Whilst extensive inquiries were made into Gordon Park's background and Carol's life history, which I already recounted in the previous episode, police had to wait for the key person to speak to to get back from his French jaunt. Four days after he'd learned of the discovery of Carol's body, at 8.20am on the morning of Sunday the 24th of August 1997, police officers were back at 34 Norland Avenue, where Gordon Park was arrested on suspicion of having murdered Carol Ann Park on or about the 17th of July 1976. I bet you couldn't see that coming, could you? Taken to Barrow in Furness Police Station, Gordon Park was then questioned in depth over the events of 1976. His story was as follows. In July 1976, Carol and Gordon were, at least on the surface, trying again. She'd come back home to Bluestone some months before following the cessation of her affair with David Brearley. Gordon had taken her back once again and life was ambling along. He did claim during his interviews in 1997 that at this time he'd heard tittle-tattle and hearsay that since being back, Carol had soon once again involved herself in affairs with other men, namely a police officer named McBride and a solicitor named Nuttall, but he claimed that it was just this rumour and he had no real suspicions about Carol being involved in yet another affair with yet another lover. With the summer holidays coming up, they'd planned to do lots with the children over the six-week break. Lots of sailing and camping, I can imagine, in that hot summer. And the activities were to begin on the very first day of the holidays, Saturday the 17th of July, with a trip to Blackpool, a large seaside resort town on the northwest coast of England in Lancashire. Gordon claimed that he and Carol had discussed doing this beforehand and how it was to be a special treat for the children. He himself hated the place for some reason, which I think is a bit harsh that Blackpool's all rock dummies, donkey rides and people who look so hard that they eat barbed wire soup and that's just the girls. Now I'm just joshing, I love it. Whenever I've been to Blackpool, I've always had a great time. I went to a fab charlatans gig in the Winter Gardens there some years back and I once stayed in a guest house there in the tiniest room that there could possibly be you would have struggled to get a fiver in between the door and the bed, and which also stank as soon as I got in there. I found, due to the mouldy half-eaten kebab that was stuffed behind the radiator and hadn't been moved, it was disgusting. But you tend not to really give too much of a shit about feng shui on a stag do though, do you? You're not bothered about it. 
That Saturday morning in July, Gordon recalled that Carol expressly didn't want to go to Blackpool. He claimed not to remember why, but that she'd seemed fine the night before, and he didn't believe that she was ill that morning. This he claimed was fine with him, both of them being teachers, Gordon only knew too well the workload and pressure that they were under, and he was more than happy to take the three park children to the seaside that day by himself to give Carol a bit of a break. As it was a bit of a drive to Blackpool, Gordon and the three children had set off quite early that morning, leaving Carol at home in bed. He went on to tell the interviewing officers that when they'd returned home later that day, Carol had gone. Several items of her clothing from her wardrobe had gone, and her rings had been removed and were left on the dressing table, which Gordon regarded to be a statement of intent. He told officers in 1997 that he thought at the time, here we go again. Gordon couldn't remember now whether Carol had taken any house keys with her, but he claimed that there was no sign of a disturbance, a break-in or any sign of blood about anywhere. As she'd left him before on several occasions, Gordon claimed that he waited before officially reporting her missing to see if she got in touch or even came back. By his own admission, he didn't contact David Brearley or Colin Foster, Carol's previous known lovers, to see whether she was with one of those, nor did he contact Carol's family to see if any of them knew where she was. As days passed, although he did tell several friends and acquaintances that Carol had once again left him or had gone missing, this was only when it was unavoidable to and he was obliged to explain Carol's absence, as though he was uncomfortable with saying it as well. On the Sunday following the Blackpool trip, that would be Sunday July the 18th, some old friends of the parks had travelled up from the Midlands to visit them and they weren't even allowed into the house. Gordon met them on the driveway and explained that Carol had gone off again on a flit, and they got the impression that he didn't want them to be in the house. He was now, whether he was just uncomfortable or not, who knows. He was reluctant to discuss the matter further than this, and may of course just wished for his privacy, as we've just said, not wanting to air his dirty laundry. Some people are very much of the opinion that my business is my business and that's it, aren't they? Can't blame person for that. I'm very much like that too. By August the 31st, Carol's teaching colleagues were aware that she'd gone when one of them contacted Bluestones to inform her of a staff meeting the following day ahead of the new school year, only to be told by Gordon that she'd left home. By the 4th of September, Gordon claimed he became concerned enough now to report her officially missing and he went around to the home of her brother Ivor Price and informed him that Carol had disappeared some six weeks before and that he was about to go and officially report a disappearance. Yet he didn't do this via the police. He instead went to his solicitors, Messrs Foresters, to do so for reasons that were never satisfactorily explained. He could never give a reason why he'd done this. They in turn then reported Carol Park as missing to police and a missing persons report was logged on the very same day, 4th of September 1976. Now it would appear that there was more than a cursory investigation back then into Carol's disappearance. There were reported searches around Bluestones and the lease area for a body or even a grave, and Gordon Park was questioned in depth. 
No charges were brought though. After all, we've said before, people do go missing, don't they? Plus, Carol had left him several times before after having affairs. But Gordon claimed that following this, he was told by police that if her body ever turned up, he would be suspect number one. Now, there could only be Gordon Park's recollection to go off here about this, as frustratingly, by 1997, the missing persons file, and it was most likely a substantial file of information as opposed to a couple of sheets of paper, had either been lost or destroyed. In 1976, it would only have been retained as a paper copy because there was no electronic storage back then, of course. But this also means that there's no record of which witnesses were interviewed, the exact action and inquiries that were undertaken at the time, or any conclusions that police reached back in 1976. But you would expect, though, that with no activity on the bank accounts which Gordon claimed that he constantly checked, but seeing no activity assumed that whoever Carol was with was financially supporting her, and her not being in touch with the children ever since, not even by letter of explanation, phone call, nothing, police would likely have quickly concluded that Carol had come to some harm, but as the file is lost, this can't be ascertained. Following this, life went on in the Park household as it previously had whenever Carol had left on other occasions, except that now, Carol was rarely, if ever, mentioned after this. All three of the Park children, when spoken to years later, have few clear memories of the period, although the consensus amongst them is that although Gordon could be strict, he was overall a kind and caring father and made a real effort with them juggling three kids with a primary school teaching career, which couldn't have been easy, could it? As time passed and it became clear that Carol wasn't coming back, Gordon moved on with his own life, throwing himself back into his outdoor pastimes once again, building another boat on his driveway, which he christened the Big O, developing an interest in Buddhism even, and he even eventually began dating again. He had a few casual girlfriends before meeting in 1978 the woman who would three years later become his second wife, Kath Sillers. This was following his divorce from Carol being granted the same year on the grounds of her desertion. And by coincidence, marriage number two was five years to the day that Carol is regarded to have disappeared, the 17th of July 1981. Gordon's second marriage was rocky almost from the start, with Kath claiming later that Gordon had distanced himself from her and her children as much as he possibly could. And when he was present, he was controlling, emotionless and manipulative. He was not liked at all by Kath's children, and he in turn didn't like them. There was argument and bickering aplenty, and not surprisingly to those who knew the couple, the marriage came to an end in mid-1984. Towards the end, it's claimed that things had degenerated so much that in an attempt to get Kath and her children to leave Bluestones, Gordon would habitually disconnect the central heating, the running water and the telephone before he left the house each day and reconnecting them when he returned. That's nice, isn't it? Gordon's next and final relationship came in late 1986 or early 1987 when he rekindled his love affair with Jennifer Marshall for she was married by then but her marriage was failing. By 1989 she was a fellow teacher at Gordon's school and was separated from her husband Mike and she stayed with Gordon at Bluestones for a period that year before buying the house at 34 Norland Avenue in Barrow. 
She'd been in a clandestine relationship with Gordon for at least two years by that time, and following the sale of Bluestones in 1991, as all the Park children had left home and had their own lives by then, Gordon moved into Norland Avenue. Jennifer was ultimately divorced from Mike in 1992, and she married Gordon the following year on the 25th of October 1993. By all later accounts, these are two people who share the same interests and professions, they're happy and content together, most likely soulmates, and the six years from 1991 to 1997 are probably the happiest that both can remember. Right up until that day in late August 1997. Over a period of 36 hours in custody, Gordon Park was questioned on 10 separate occasions at Barrow Police Station with his solicitor Mike Graham in constant presence throughout. The interviews covered a wide range of subjects from his and Carol's life before the 17th of July 1976 through her two known affairs and him reporting him missing in September that year onto his outdoor pastimes and his proficiency for sailing, climbing and knot tying right through his subsequent marriages. He continued to deny through every interview that he was responsible for Carol's death, and when challenged on anything that he couldn't answer, he claimed a hazy recollection due to the passage of time and would refer interviewers to the statement I made in 1976. He'd say that quite often. Most of the contents of these interviews, including his responses to questioning, have been used to create the narrative that you've heard here so far and in the previous episode. But police believed strongly that Gordon Park remembered full well the events of that July day in 1976. He was admittedly the last person to see Carol alive and the primary known person to be able to see her in such intimate dress as a blue baby doll nightdress. He had access to a boat, his own, which was moored on Coniston Water at the time, had a quantity of similar lead piping to that used to wake Carol's body in the garage of his former home, was experienced in tying complex knots due to his outdoor pursuits, arguably had motive due to Carol's repeated infidelity, and who'd waited six weeks before reporting her officially missing, and then only doing so through his solicitors, not directly to police himself. Now I'm no murder she wrote, regardless of what you think. I've got better hair than Angela Lansbury, actually. But do you think that's a compelling suspect? Police certainly did, and shortly after 8pm on the evening of 25th of August 1997, Gordon Park was charged with the murder of Carol Ann Park on or about the 17th of July 1976. His response to this was, I'm innocent of this charge. The following morning, Park appeared at Furness and District Magistrates Court, where he was remanded in custody to Preston Prison for two weeks. He was granted bail on the 9th of September upon conditions that he lived with his sister in Manchester, surrendered his passport and obtained a curfew, reported twice weekly in person to Tilsley Police Station, didn't approach any prosecution witnesses, and apart from very restricted circumstances, did not return to Cumbria whilst he was awaiting trial. Park was to comply with these conditions successfully. 
However, after a review of the evidence and much consultation between legal bigwigs, it was ultimately decided not to proceed with the case. The CPS considered that the evidence the Crown had to take the case to trial was ultimately too circumstantial and it didn't give them the edge that they would have liked to try and gain a conviction. They weren't happy with the time frame in which Carol was supposedly killed and the fact that the children must have been out of the house at least when she was disposed of to do this. They didn't like the extreme coldness of the case and the 21 year gap between the event and trial. But the main point was the missing 1976 missing persons file, as they believed that not only could the defence argue that any witnesses called who'd been spoken to 21 years previously could not be challenged on what they said back then, but that there may have been other witnesses now unidentifiable or unavailable contained within that file that the defence could claim may have assisted the defendant. Therefore, on the 6th of January 1998, the case was discontinued and Gordon Park was released. The CPS subsequently issued a statement saying, After a conference with leading counsel and the police, a decision was taken in agreement with all parties that there was insufficient evidence for a realistic prospect of conviction. Now this created a press furor with an estimated 300 plus articles appearing about the case in the UK papers alone and it eventually led to Gordon himself giving an exclusive interview to the Mail on Sunday newspaper about his press harassment telling them how he wanted nothing more than to now put the events of the past 21 years behind him so that he and Jennifer could move on with their lives. The £50,000 sum that he received for the interview with the Mail on Sunday newspaper must have undoubtedly helped him to do this, I reckon. And following his release, he attempted to do just that. He and Jennifer cracked on with their lives and even took up tandem cycling, which I've never done, but if I did, I'd always want to be the person at the back, I think. You know, just get fed up and just think, oh, I'll put my feet up for a bit, let him do it. Interestingly though, Park would claim that following his release, he ceased his great passion for sailing completely, feeling it would be inappropriate to do so, particularly on Coniston Water, and no evidence was found to contradict this claim. Too close to home, perhaps. However, just because the CPS decided the evidence wasn't strong enough, Police did not just close the case and rule Gordon Park out as a suspect. On the contrary, they were more certain than ever that he had brutally murdered his wife, and whilst the case was not officially closed, all reviews of it were very low-key. Police looked at every angle once again. They considered and ruled out other persons with possible motives, people such as David Brearley or Colin Foster. They even looked at the killer of Carol's sister, John Rapson, who in 1976 was released and was actually back in the Barrow area. They looked at all of these as potential suspects and all of them were ultimately ruled out of the investigation. The one person investigators kept coming back to was Gordon Park. And police theory about what had happened was along the lines of the following. Either on the night of the 17th of July 1976 or the following morning, because years later, although all of the Park children do recall a trip to Blackpool, they cannot conclusively say that it was Saturday the 18th of July 1976, 
and they could of course have been staying with friends or relatives that day or evening. Sure people can remember places they've been and trips that they've been on years before, but how many of us can remember the exact day and date of these so many years later? Very few. But I do think you tend to remember the day that you last ever saw your mum. I, I Personally, I think I would, yeah. So either the Friday or the Saturday night then, Gordon and Carol had argued about why it's uncertain. Although one theory was advanced later that perhaps Carol had been talking about divorce and how she wanted the house and children. They may have rowed about one or all of Carol's affairs. It could have been absolutely anything. This would most likely have taken place in the bedroom at Bluestones, which was the only room in the house that the children were expressly not allowed into. No screams or sounds of a struggle were heard, so it's conceivable that Carol was struck quickly and suddenly in anger, and a climbing axe to the face, which has long been considered the most likely weapon, and an item Gordon Park certainly was in possession of, will cause mass and horrific injury, perhaps even instant death. Immediately afterwards, before rigor mortis can set in, she was placed into the fetal position and wrapped up in stuff to hand, plastic bags and an old rucksack, before being secured using a sizeable length of rope, trussing the body in an intricate pattern and fastening with a series of varying complex knots. It was then subsequently placed into a makeshift bag created from a pinafore dress. Now if the killing occurred when the children were present in the house, they would have most likely have long been in bed and wouldn't have seen anything. And if they had heard an argument, well it was sadly something that they were very used to. Carol's body was then either placed into the boot of the car, or perhaps even possibly kept in a chest freezer in the garage for a number of days, before being transported to Coniston Water, where it was placed onto a boat and dumped overboard in the middle of the lake. All hopes being that Carol would remain in her watery grave forever undiscovered. The room was then cleaned due to what must have been a substantial amount of blood staining, perhaps using some of Carol's clothing to do this, and the rings placed on the dressing table, the scene staged to make it appear that she'd done another flit and had left, this time ostensibly for good. Occam's razor and all that, you know? And after reviewing all of the evidence that they'd gained, every which way they looked as far as police were concerned, there was only one man with the means, motive and opportunity to do just this, the most likely suspect, Gordon Park. It was to take six more years to gather enough evidence before police felt they could re-arrest him, but on the morning of 13th of January 2004, he was indeed re-arrested at his home on suspicion of the murder of Carol Park, taken once again to Barrow Police Station and questioned for two days, following which he was again charged with her murder. This time he made no reply to the charge whatsoever. He was remanded in custody for two weeks once again before being bailed to await his trial, which began ten months later on November the 25th, 2004 at Manchester Crown Court. So what had come to light in the preceding six years to make the CPS now change their minds about going ahead with the case? While the trial was to hear of new suggested physical evidence, the evidence of two forensic experts, a clothing expert, and three controversial new witnesses. 
From 1998, when the case was reinvestigated in depth, the investigative team at first looked at other people who possibly may have had motive to have murdered Carol Park, which boiled down to a lover. As we said, David Brearley was interviewed and ruled out as a suspect, Colin Foster the same, even the tenuous linker John Rapson was ruled out also. They were simply found not to either have a likely enough motive nor the means practical to dispose of Carol. It just wasn't happening whatsoever. A jealous girlfriend angle of Gordon's being responsible was looked at and discounted. A family and everyone who knew Carol was ruled out once again as suspects, so barring some ultra-secret lover with a boat, the means and a massive grudge, it left suspect number one, Gordon Park. The previous investigation years before had employed a not-expert named Roger Ide, a highly qualified and experienced forensic scientist whose specialism consisted on giving expert opinion on knots and ligatures. I bet he's fun to be trapped in a lift with, isn't he? Mr Ide had examined both the ropes associated with the body and the ropes removed from the searches that were carried out preceding Gordon Park's 1997 arrest. Now I'm not going to relate his full findings here, there were bowlines here and shanks there and half reefs and all this nonsense and it boggled my mind just reading it. My mate was in fits of laughter as I was researching this just from the expressions on my face. To condense his findings, he found that most of the knots were complex bowline and figure of eight knots most commonly associated with climbing or sailing, and almost impossible to do without vast experience in one or both of these pastimes. Several of the ropes showed evidence of heat sealing at the ends to prevent fraying, which is also another common action in these fields. So in 2000, Cumbria Police utilised another expert and a member of the International Guild of Knot Tires, which is next on my list to join, after the Greek Rural Postcode Appreciation Society, that is. Michael Lucas was the expert, who again examined both sets of the same ropes to try and further Roger Ide's findings. After his examination, he reported finding many clearly identifiable and unusual complex knot comparisons between both sets that could only have been tied by an experienced knot enthusiast with a high level of knot tying skill as Gordon Park had admitted that he was in his police interviews in both 1997 and 2004. The court at his trial heard how Mr Lucas expressed in his report that in his opinion, both sets of knots examined were tied by the same person. Boom, you would not believe the headache writing that segment gave me. You really wouldn't. Next up, evidentially, was a stone that had been removed from the lake bed quite near to where the body was discovered. It had apparently been recovered from here in 1997, but was only examined as potential evidence in 2004, and the police diver who was found to have recovered it actually claimed to have no memory of doing so, even reportedly and bizarrely fainting when it was produced for some reason. What made this stone unique is that it was reportedly not indigenous to the bottom of Coniston water, but was found to match stones used in one of the walls of bluestones, and therefore the inference was that Gordon Park had used it as a surplus weight. The same was inferred about a piece of Westmoreland slate that was recovered near to the same spot, as it matched the slate used in the creation of bluestones' roof. But this type of slate had been worked in the area for many years and conceivably 
that piece could have come from absolutely anywhere. Several items of female clothing and cosmetics had also been recovered from the same area of the bottom of the lake, and although they were degraded and severely water damaged, they were sufficiently intact enough to be able to be examined. A clothing expert named Pauline Rushton, with the use of examining the badly faded labels and painstakingly leafing through copies of 1970s clothing catalogues and magazine adverts, was eventually able to narrow down these items as, in her professional opinion, belonging to ranges sold and manufactured by Marks and Spencers from a period ranging from the late 1960s to the mid-1970s, specifically around 1973 to 1974. When this was presented in court, Gordon Park could not clarify if Carol had owned any similar items of clothing at the time. So it's all highly suggestive, yes, granted, but circumstantial still. Next up was a new eyewitness. In January 2004, a woman named Joan Young came forward to police with a remarkable story. In late July 1976, she and her then-boyfriend John, who was now her husband as he'd proposed to her on the trip, had been on a break in the Lake District and were parked late one morning at a car park on the east shore of Coniston Water, when Joan's attention was drawn to a youngish, slim, brown-haired, glasses-wearing, wet-suited male who was stood out on a masted white boat a distance out on the lake. As she watched the man, and some accounts do stress through binoculars, she saw him pick up and dump a bulky-looking item, similar to a rolled-up carpet, over the side of the boat, where the item appeared to sink. She remembered this because she remarked to John, I hope he's not getting rid of his wife. Neither she nor John reported this to police at the time, and 22 years later, whilst holidaying again in Keswick, Joan read reports of the discovery of Carol's body in an article on the wall of the hotel bar that the couple were in at the time. When she read the article, she gleaned the impression that because the case hadn't proceeded, there was no point in informing police about what she'd witnessed 22 years before, because she must have been mistaken. It was only six years later when her sister informed her to tell her about a suspect's re-arrest for the murder of Carol Park, remembering what Jonah told her many years before, that she decided to come forward to police and tell her tale. Before she made any formal witness statement though, she admitted having seen a picture of Gordon Park in an online article about the case, and as a result she was sure that it was him. Although her testimony in court was given, the evidence of her identifying Gordon Park as the man in the boat was ultimately not allowed to go before the jury as it was considered too weak and unreliable to be allowed to stand as its prejudicial effect outweighed its value. Now this sighting does sound a bit vague and unreliable. It was 28 years later and there are several articles that pick holes in the young story. It's claimed variously that they were parked at least a mile further away from where Carol's body would be discovered 21 years later, with an island in the lake obscuring any possible view that they would have had of the body site from where they were parked. It was claimed that John Young was in fact reading his newspaper at the time and didn't see anything after all, and there is of course the fact that Joan had admittedly seen a picture of Gordon Park before making a statement which to me anyway questions the reliability of it. 
However, the description that she gave was one that at the time wasn't too far away from a description of Gordon Park back in 1976. Although he claimed not to wear glasses outside the family home, photographs were to emerge dating from 1973 that show him, Carol and the Park children on a day out somewhere where Gordon can be seen clearly bespectacled. He had also owned a similar boat to the one described, a two-berth masted sailing dinghy, but he claimed in an interview that he'd sold it in late June 1976 and he didn't actually have a boat then. The sailing log of the boat, which was called Sailfish, however, told a different story when it was traced. It was the end of July 1976 that it was sold. At his trial, Gordon Park was to concede that he was clearly mistaken about both wearing glasses outside and the date of the boat sail. But the most controversial of all of the new evidence discovered in this six-year interim between Park's arrests came with the testimonies in court of two former prisoners, Michael Wainwright and Glenn Banks, both of whom had come forward many years after the event to make statements to the effect that Gordon Park had confessed to the murder of Carol Park to them whilst he was in custody in Preston Prison for the two-week period following his arrest in August 1997. Wainwright, who was a heavy 12 joints a day cannabis user and was on remand at the time, someone who admitted hearing voices and reportedly had had many dealings with psychiatrists during his various stints in prison, testified at the trial a confused story, claiming that Park had told him he'd gone upstairs at home one day, found his wife in bed with another man and had killed her in a fit of rage and placed her into a chest freezer before later dumping the body. Park reportedly told him that she deserved it. Now there's a slight flaw here with this evidence. Bluestones is a bungalow, of course. It doesn't have an upstairs. And who was and what happened to the lover that she was supposedly boffing at the time when Gordon caught her? It was also significant that it later transpired Wainwright had actually made three statements to police over four years and that this feature of his account appeared only in his third statement which was made after the case had featured in a 2000 television documentary. Park himself claimed that he had no recollection whatsoever of even meeting Wainwright, although he did acknowledge meeting Glenn Banks. During the 14 days Park had been held in custody in 1997, He'd shared a cell with Banks, who was a prisoner with a severe learning disability. It's claimed that Park developed a friendship of sorts with him, and ultimately helped him to write letters home in a sort of teacher-pupil relationship. Banks claimed to police that he'd become fascinated with Park when he learned that he was suspected of murder, and that Park kept him awake at night talking in his sleep about the late Coniston murder, or words to that effect. He claimed that Park had ultimately told him some days later that the murder had been committed on a boat, and that he'd drugged Carol, strangled her and struck her with an axe and had then thrown her overboard. Given evidence at the trial in 2005, Banks, who was deemed to have such learning disabilities that the guidelines for children's court testimony were followed, and he was allowed to give evidence by video link, had some difficulty even getting this story straight, and at one point even stated, he said he'd killed his missus whilst on a boat in Blackpool. Although there were then two people both claiming that Park had confessed murder to them, this jailhouse snitch testimony 
as it's known, does seem disreputable evidence indeed, doesn't it? Apart from the many contradictions and inconsistency in the stories, could it really be credible that a man who's been unwavering and passionate in maintaining his innocence throughout every interview and every visitation with all of those people who are closest to him confesses two differing accounts of murder to two disreputable prisoners that he'd known only for a few days, where he himself claimed that he never told them anything more than a few basic details about himself, trying to pass the time because he was sharing a cell with the guy and you've got to try and get on. Yet after a 10-week trial, in a case which the prosecution relied solely on circumstantial evidence and testimonies such as you've heard here, there was no DNA, CCTV or arguably reliable eyewitnesses. The jury returned from deliberation on the 28th of January 2005 and delivered a unanimous verdict of guilty. Presiding Mr Justice McComb delivered a sentence of life imprisonment to Gordon Park, stressing that he must serve a minimum of 15 years imprisonment before being considered for parole. He was then taken to Strangeways Prison in Manchester to begin his sentence. An official appeal against his conviction was launched in December 2007 by a newly appointed legal team based around the findings of a geologist who was prepared to refute part of the prosecution's evidence and testify that the rock introduced at trial as coming from the wall at Bluestones was actually indistinguishable from others that were in the lake bed thus casting doubt on the validity of the other circumstantial evidence. However, when the appeal was heard in November 2008 at the Court of Appeal in London, it was rejected, with Lord Justice Keane stating that the new evidence did not raise a reasonable doubt as to the safety of this conviction, saying that the geological evidence was only a small element of the strong circumstantial case against the applicant. But Park still had and remains to have today many supporters who believe that a miscarriage of justice had occurred and the campaign that had begun in earnest to get his conviction overturned continued to attempt to find evidence to clear his name. And it produced results that had they been introduced at trial it may have even altered the outcome. For example there were reports of a light blue Volkswagen Beetle that was seen by the park's next door neighbour on the drive of Bluestones on the day that the murder is alleged to have happened that's never been traced or ruled out and another reliable witness, a lady who knew Carol, claimed in 1997 to have seen her at Charnock Richard service station on the M6 at about 6pm on the day that she's also alleged to have died. On the basis of these reports, Gordon's son Jeremy created the now-archived website freegordon.com, which analysed and refuted the evidence that led to the conviction and invited people to support and get involved with the campaign. Candlelight vigils attended by family and friends in support of Gordon Park's innocence were held outside Strangeways Prison annually. Rewards of £5,000 were offered for information coming forward that led to Gordon being freed and several journalists, most notably renowned crime correspondent Bob Wuffingdon, took up the fight to try and help to clear Gordon Park's name. The case also features in a chapter of a 2008 book entitled No Smoke, The Shocking Truth About British Justice, written by academic Sandra Lean, which criticises and argues the case against each item of the prosecution's evidence. 
It does make for very interesting reading and a link to both this book and others, plus a link to the web archived freegordon.com site and several articles of interest about the case will all be contained within this week's show notes. By all accounts, Gordon Park found prison life very hard indeed. He'd get called nicknames such as Binbags while serving his sentence, with prison gallows humour in reference to the crime. And although he reportedly got involved with pursuits such as keeping fit, doing Tai Chi and undertaking a maths degree to help keep himself occupied and pass his sentence, he was unable to cope with his life sentence following dismissal of his appeal against conviction. On the 25th of January 2010, the morning of Park's 66th birthday, he was found hanged and unconscious in his prison cell at Garth Prison in Lancashire and was pronounced dead at the scene. A later inquest in 2013 ruled that he'd taken his own life. Never wavering from the moment he was arrested, he had consistently protested his innocence and was steadfast in his claim that he'd not murdered his wife Carol. Sadly, by that time, the Park family was already long since split irreparably by the crime. The once close Park and Price children now estranged from each other due to the perceived actions of Gordon Park on each his behalf. Carol's surviving relatives, brother Ivor and wife Maureen, had passed away in 2007, sadly, condemned Gordon and welcomed the guilty verdict, feeling that justice had finally been served for their Aunt Carol upon his conviction. His adopted daughter Vanessa is now also estranged from his siblings as she too believes in Park's guilt and even appeared as a prosecution witness in 2004 testifying as to how Gordon was a strict father who used to use a cane to discipline them as children. Rachel and Jeremy Park, conversely, continue to this day to believe in their father's innocence and they continue to try and clear his name and obtain his conviction being overturned posthumously joined in this fight by his wife Jennifer. They stress how before his murder conviction, Gordon Park had no criminal record and no reported history of violence whatsoever, and they believe that another as yet unidentified person is the one responsible for Carol's murder, and that Gordon's conviction in 2005 was not only unsafe due to the disreputable evidence, but that his trial was prejudiced from the outset due to the mass media speculation and press reports that had appeared in the six years between his arrests. Mud sticks, if you like, and it was a case of police being determined to get the conviction that they wanted. As late as even 2018, it was reported that the Criminal Case Review Commission was preparing to take the conviction once again to the Court of Appeal with a view to getting it posthumously quashed, this time based upon the focus of DNA testing of the ropes used to bind Carol's body, showing the presence of as yet unidentified DNA. The outcome of this hasn't been reported yet, and with any further developments on this angle, I shall of course put out an update to the episode. Equally still today, there are several people who'd known both Gordon and Carol for many years with differing opinions as to his guilt. There are several articles available throughout online searching or in printed text that I've found that do make compelling cases for either side. And whilst we've said that there's no one definitive piece of evidence that suggests that Gordon Park and he alone unquestionably killed his wife, it does stand that there is much circumstantial evidence to suggest that he did. When it was placed together, 
the jury at his trial decided that this circumstantial evidence amounted and pointed to a killer, a notion perhaps best summed up with the opening prosecution address to them at Park's trial. Alistair Webster QC said, Whoever killed and disposed of Carol Park would have the following characteristics. A person who knew her sufficiently well to come across her in a short nightdress. A person who had reason to strongly dislike or lose his temper with her. A person who was thoroughly familiar with knots, both as a sailor and climber. A meticulous person, a person with access to a boat and familiarity with Coniston water. One man fits this description. Gordon Park. Still now, even so many years after the crime and Gordon Park's death, Coniston Waters' Lady in the Lake case continues today to fascinate students of true crime and make newspaper reports. It's inspired the plots of TV dramas, been the subject of several television documentaries, links to which will be within the show notes, and it's featured in many true crime publications perhaps most notably in a 2016 book entitled A Very Cumbrian Murder, to which was an absolutely invaluable source while I was researching these episodes. And a link to it is guess where? You got it yet. The show notes will be particularly chocker this week, I think. I hope that you found these episodes of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast interesting ones. The case is long one that I found fascinating and it was a natural successor to Margaret's case which was featured previously on the show. I know I do tend to repeat myself every week with I find this one fascinating and I find that one fascinating but I really really do. It's been my lifelong interest and hence the show name. It is quite a chilling case this one I thought though and how much of a coincidence that such similar crimes could culminate in such close proximity, in the same year, but be totally unconnected from one another. That's quite mind-boggling, isn't it? Unreal, you couldn't make that up. I also thought this is a very sad one, though, isn't it? I mean, whatever anyone's faults or their behaviour, murder is still murder, and no one deserves being so brutally killed and then left in a watery grave for so many years. Three children were left to go throughout life without a mother, whom they must have long suspected was dead, but had never known for sure. There must have almost always been that, however small, constant, what if. And for Vanessa, it was to be the second mother that she lost to murder in her life. It doesn't come much more tragic than that, does it? Please remember Carol and her family foremost over anything out of the episode. The reason why I split it into two episodes is because there was an absolutely hell of a lot to take in and I probably could have continued, believe me. I had to really condense them down but it's a case that made me proper go down the rabbit hole because it's so complex and it's controversial and it raised a lot of questions I think. But I've tried to remain throughout the two episodes unbiased to bring a detailed comprehensive account of the known facts about the case and the evidence that was presented. I did do a list of pointers for Park's guilt and for his innocence on my notepad based on my research for the episode, which I often do for cases that I feature on the show, but I'll leave that up to you guys to see what you come up with yourselves. So what do you think then? Was Gordon Park the person who killed his wife Carol, tied and weighted her body and dropped it into the depths of Coniston Water? Or was the killer another, perhaps an unnamed lover of Carol's, who's gotten away with her murder for almost 43 years. 
And why exactly was she killed? Was it premeditated or spur of the moment? When did someone else have the means, motive and the opportunity to do so? Do you see what I mean? Questions, 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 isn't it? It is likely though, that barring any new evidence coming to light, the exact events and the full truth concerning Carol's murder will never be known, it being one secret that the depths of Coniston Water holds onto. I would be absolutely thrilled to bits hearing your thoughts about the case that we've looked at over these episodes. I do invite you to read up further on it because there are masses of articles out there for perusing and as I said I could probably have continued. We do like to go that much more in depth here on the show don't we? But there has to be a line drawn doesn't there? Please make sure that you check out the links in the show notes and the pictures concerning the case that are available on the show's Instagram page. I'm hoping to see a very active thread in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group where the episode link will now be placed or you can reach me through the usual social media channels should you wish to discuss the episode of course. Now I'll be back a little bit later with the next episode due to unforeseen circumstances which is also a bonus of me staggering this case in one full it. And the next full length episode of the show will be released on the 14th or the 15th of April. And after spending the past couple of weeks in the water, I'm going to make sure that next time I'm back on dry land. Look out also for a post coming across the True Crime Enthusiast podcast pages concerning another similar murder in the same area. And yes, I did say post, not episode, and I'll just explain why. At the end of The Secret of Wass Water, I did say that there were another two Lady of the Lake cases, and we've covered the better known of the two in the previous two episodes. The other one is the often forgotten case of Sheena Owlett, who was murdered and her body dumped in Crummock Water, which is again up in the Lake District in 1988. However, there is next to nothing available to research about the case. Absolutely bugger all. There really is, and believe me, I have tried except for an excellent YouTube video that was painstakingly researched and created by Curious World, who I referred to a couple of episodes ago and who's covered all three of the cases in separate videos for his YouTube channel. I was in contact with Curious World whilst researching the secret of Wasp Water and have found his style and research to be of the utmost top quality. Were I to do an episode covering Sheena's case, his video would be the only source of research that I'd have available. Now from listening to it and the exchanges I've had with him, I know the lengths that he went to to make the video and I feel personally that it wouldn't seem right to use someone else's work to present the exact same case, perhaps not even to the same level. I'm very much for all for fair play like that. Therefore I shall be posting Curious World's video concerning the Sheila Owlet case up across the show's pages and you guys can have a listen and see what you think yourselves. I'll do that in the interim between now and the next episode. However, I'd just like to remind you that Patreon bonus episode number 15 is now out if you don't want to wait that long. Yours and the other 14 can be available for a very reasonable cost indeed, should you wish. I'm wrapping up now for this week and because I'm a bit fed up of the lakes, to be honest. So all that remains for me to say is that I thank you so much for joining me today. I really do. This is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, Wishing you guys all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care enthusiasts, thanks for joining me and goodbye for now.